Now, the, the title of Martin's talk is A Brief Walk Through Time, The Story of the Levenston Asylum. But it's still 125 years, Martin. That's a good stroll, never mind a brief walk. So we'd also like to thank the many of you who are listening in to us through the Rippercast podcast. And if you do want to find out more about us, please go to the whitechapelsociety.com website and you can find out about how to join us and who our next speakers are and get involved. So our speaker tonight is a retired journalist and writer and is a founder of the Leavesden Hospital History Association. And it is in that role that he's been able to interview many of its former staff and collected hundreds of first-hand accounts that deal with the heritage and culture of caring at Livingston. Now, after four years of work, Martin has compiled some of these stories into a book called Acts of Caring and Other Heroics, Stories from the Livingston Asylum Hospital, 1868 to 1995. This has now been published by the Independent Publishers Network. Now, of particular interest to us is the fact that the Livingston Asylum is a place where the Jack the Ripper suspect, Aaron Kosminski, spent most of his adult life. Now, like most old institutions constructed around this time, the building has had its fair share of mysterious history. Ghostly figures being seen in the manor houses, unexplained things being photographed and recorded in one of the three cemeteries on site. So we're delighted that Martin has made the journey down to address us this evening and to tell us about the fascinating history of this building. So let's give a big welcome to Martin Brooks. Thank you very much for inviting me down uh, before you're on Zoom. Louis, if, if you're on Zoom, thank you for inviting me down for your very first meeting in 2023. It's nice to see some brand new faces. Good to see some old faces. And well, not that your face is old, but I've seen before. So... Um, I have to, I have to, I have to make two confessions. Uh, with, pan, with pandemic and everything, it's been about a year since I've actually given this, so this is my first one in a year. I hope I haven't forgotten everything. I also have to let you know that I've just completed seven performances of Panto, so I have a microphone. If I break into song anywhere during that performance, <laughs> just ignore me. I'll try not to do that. So anyway, it's called a brief walk through time. Uh, it all started back in 2008 when I was appointed as the very first park ranger for Three Rivers District Council. My first assignment was Leaston Country Park. So 57 acre country park, I thought, ooh, that's going to be an easy job, you know, a couple flower beds, you know, take care of some trees. No, ended up being a real, a real project. But I wasn't, on, I wasn't on the job for more than a day before all the locals wanted to tell the new kid on the block about the history of this park. It used to be a Victorian asylum. Across the road, we actually had a, uh, an old Victorian workhouse, um, an industrial school. Jack the Ripper is buried in the cemetery. He's not, but it's a really wonderful urban legend that continues to this day. In fact, whenever I go back there and I'm up in the cemetery, you can always tell somebody that's looking for Jack when they walk in, because they're always looking up. As if there's going to be a tombstone saying, Jack the Ripper lies here, you know. But people still go looking for it, you can always tell them. So that's how I got started in all this. I became fascinated with the old Victorian times, especially this asylum. So I started researching and collecting uh, documents, artifacts, whatever I could find. I started giving the brief walk through time in 2009. That included both the north side of the park, which was the asylum, and the south side of the park, which was the orphanage. At that time, the brief walk took four and a half hours. We did stop for a quick break at the Swan Pub, but... It still, took, it still took four and a half hours. 
Unfortunately, I couldn't, about 2018, I couldn't do them anymore, so we had to like, cut them in half and we just do the north side now. So my brief walk through time is actually uh, very, very brief nowadays. So anyway, this is how it all got started. Just to give everybody a point of reference, you can uh, see where we are here, uh, down at the very bottom, and you can see where Leeson Asylum is, up in Abbott's Langley, just north of Watford. So when the Metropolitan Asylums Board was formed in 1868, they wanted Leaston Asylum to take care of the north side of London, and St. Lawrence's Asylum in Caterham was to take care of the south side of London, and that's how they kind of split it up. Um, the Hertfordshire, south of Hertfordshire County actually had four different asylums there, uh, Shenley, Ratlett, one in St. Albans, and Leaston. The reason that we had more asylums built in our area than anywhere else was because we had the acreage, and these sites were very big. They needed, you know, 70, 80 acres to build these big buildings uh, and house 2,000 people. Um, and it was also, they built them right at the end of train lines. So all of these asylums that were in Hertfordshire County were right at the end of train lines. And that's how they located that area there. So that's kind of the reference. This is what the area looked like uh, back in 1741. Um, you can see where um, uh, Watford is. Uh, you can see Leaveston up here, uh, Langley Abbey. Uh, which is uh, Abbots Langley, um, and there's a whole history behind how uh, Abbots Langley and Kings Langley got its name. Uh, you can see uh, the Grove, uh, Sarah Ratlett, you can see St. Albans, Cassio Hill. I always found it very interesting uh, coming from America. Um, oh, by the way, if you haven't figured it out, I'm not originally from here. I, I did have to spend 47 years in, in, uh, in America. Mom and Dad uh, left uh, London with me and my brother when I was three. I was forced to grow up there, and then Mom and I came back in 2006. So I moved here permanently in 2006, which means that you can't blame me for Biden or Trump. I wasn't there to vote for it. It's not my fault. So this is what it looked like. I always found it very interesting. Um, this map is 1741. Watford was already a very large established uh, city back then, uh, which means that Watford was around uh, 70 to 100 years before the United States of America was even recognized, and we won our independence. So, uh, so that's when I got into history, really old history and everything. So that's what it looked like back then. The history of taking care of the poor, or the reason for all these asylums and everything. Can everybody see? Can you guys see over there? Um, the, um, the reason this got started, uh, the whole reason behind um, all of this. So wait. We'll wait for everybody to get, come on in and get settled. Because that gives me a chance to have another day. I really love these headphones. Because I got the clicker in here, I got the headphone here that still leaves one hand open for the beer. We do charge extra for coming in late. Late comes. I always, I always knew eventually these, one of these speeches would fill a room. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got a full house. Welcome to the big time. Although the panto I just did had 300 people in the audience. <laughs> it's not a competition. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I like these a lot better, to be honest. Um, right answer. Yeah. So, um, this is how the whole history of caring, this is, this is what, what led to establishments of institutions like the Leafson Asylum and uh, Ratlin and Shenley and uh, St. Lawrence's Asylum and everything. The Va Vagabond Act of uh, uh, 1495 was actually basically created just to keep everybody off the streets. 
They wanted to know what to do with all these people uh, who were living on the streets, who were homeless, most of which uh, had mental health issues. But of course, they didn't know it back then. Um, so this is how the whole evolution of mental health and learning disabilities started. So you had that. You had the Vagabond, uh, Vagabond and Beggars Act, uh, 1531. Everything changed, of course, uh, when King Henry the um, Eighth, uh, uh, you know, uh, took over all the churches because the churches at that time were the ones that were giving alms, and they were the ones who were actually given the money to take care of these people that were living on the streets. Unfortunately, the money very rarely ever made it to help those people. It usually ended up in the pocket of the parish and you know the priest and everything. So it kept getting worse and worse. And so eventually, um, in um, uh, 1867, uh, they said, right, we need to centralize all of this, so the government is now going to take this all over. They created the uh, Metropolitan Asylum Board, and they started building things in 1868, and they started building places like Leavesden. So, some of the people that were responsible for this, um, Florence Nightingale, uh, obviously her um, envir environmental theory of medicine, uh, her environmental theory of nursing, which basically said that somebody's recovery from any illness is directly related to the environment that they're in. So if you start building nice, new, clean, you know, san sanitary places, people will get healthier. And that is the motto that is uh, still practiced by the nurses. In fact, the nurses nowadays still have to take uh, the, the um, Florence Nightingale pledge uh, before they become nurses and everything. So she was one of the people that started it. Uh, Charles Dickens also started it, of course. Uh, he was a very uh, socially active writer, novelist, journalist, um, and he, um, he had some uh, familiarity because his father was actually in a workhouse, couldn't pay his bills, his father actually went to the workhouse, and, and uh, Charles uh, Dickens himself was actually in an orphanage workhouse, um, which is probably the basis for the most famous story he ever wrote, which was Oliver, which was actually based on that's what it was like back in those days. In the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, that was the, it was a workhouse. You had to work for your living. Um, and, and that's a whole that's a whole other thing. But these are these are people like this were the people that were involved in creating this new way of taking care of people who had mental health illnesses, what we would later discover to be learning disabilities and everything. Um, back in the day, we always have to say back in the day, um, we have uh, 84, 84 reasons why you could have been committed to an asylum like Leaveston. Uh, some of them, I don't know if you can see them very well, uh, some of them nowadays, you know, quite humorous, you might say, uh, kicked in the head by a horse. Okay, well, that's logical, you know, I mean, that makes sense. Egotism. If you have a big ego, you could have ended up there. What you have to remember, when you read a list like this, it wasn't just the fact that um, one of my favorite ones is novel, excessive novel reading. You could have been, well, it wasn't just because you like to read a lot of books. It's if you started reading a lot of novels and books and you started fantasizing and you actually believed that you lived in the book or the book came to life, it was that kind of thing. But these are, these are some of my favorite ones. An immoral lifestyle, uh, imprisonment. Uh, dissolute habits, egotism, periodic fits, uh, fever, loss of a lawsuit, greediness. That's pretty much half of the politicians I've ever met. So, you know, uh, some of the other ones, again, novel reading, overstudy of religion, religious fanaticism, you could have been committed for that, religious enthusiasm, bad habits, uh, political excitement, superstition, oh, Imagine nowadays how many of the paranormal investigators we have that could have been locked up back then, you know. The Salvation Army. I've never quite understood why, why belonging to the Salvation Army. 
could have had anything to do with that, but apparently it was one of those things. My favorite too, snuff eating for two years. Well, for God's sake, if you're eating snuff for two years on the go, you're going to have some problems, you know. Parents were cousins. Well, I don't want to mention any of my relatives in Tennessee, so, you know, we kind of have our own issues with that down south back home. But, you know, we, we kind of fixed that, you know, but back then that was an actual problem. Now, these, you know, these are some of the things that you, uh, you know, you could have been committed to. And, and ladies, I have to tell you, there's at least four different reasons that you could have been committed to this asylum because of your monthly friend. And it really actually only took the signature of the man of the house and the sergeant of the police department to have you committed. That would have saved me a lot of problems with doors. <laughs> I sign that thing. She got no. Unfortunately, it was like that back then. Um, but over time, we realized there's a lot of these things that people were being committed for, being you know, uh, diagnosed with these mental health issues. Uh, dropsy is actually swelling of soft tissue, laziness. Chronic fatigue syndrome, that's a big one now. CFS, ME and CFS, of which I suffer both. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, what they would have called laziness. Uh, Scar Latina, scarlet fever, the war. What is, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome? That's what we would call it nowadays. Overactive mind and mental excitement. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Another one I have. I actually went through here. I ticked off about three of these. So I'm kind of concerned that somewhere somebody might, you know, no, disposition of the nerves, asthma. Uh, time of life. That's my favorite one. Time of life. Yes, menopause. If you, re if you really reacted badly to that, uh, and it's like postnatal depression, uh, things like that. Of course, you may have heard stories about how some young unmarried women who became pregnant actually ended up in an asylum. The only reason that that actually really happened, and it did, we do have one written case of it. In fact, um, she was committed to the asylum when her, uh, child was, or her child was born. She was in the asylum. The child went across the road to the orphanage, never saw the child again. She was 16 at the time. She didn't get released until she was 74. She spent her entire life there. But she was suffering from a very, very severe case of what we now know to be postpartum depression. So these are the things that kind of lead into it. Um, so these were the hospitals that uh, the Metropolitan Asylum Board uh, built at that time. Uh, Darneth, Leaston Hospital, uh, Catering Mental Hospital, which is actually St. Lawrence, which is called St. Lawrence's, St. Lawrence's Asylum in Catering, um, Tuning Beck, and uh, Fountain uh, Mental uh, Hospital, which I couldn't locate a picture of. These were kind of the six main ones in and around Leaston, and when the Metropolitan Asylum Board started, these are the facilities that they either built or took over specifically for taking care of people with mental health problems. Uh, and it, this, was, this was when they started recognizing it as actually being, you know, you weren't just lazy, you had a mental health problem. You weren't just living on the streets because you didn't want to work, you had a mental health problem. So this is where it all started to change, it was in the 18, uh, 1860s, 1868 or so. This was the original site of the Leaston uh, Asylum. Uh, this again is in Abbott's Langley, north of here. Um, you can see it was originally 85 acres, and when it opened in uh, October 8th of 1870, it was 85 acres and considered to be the largest mental health facility in all of Europe. It was that big. So it had 20 acres of building sites, it had, it had 20 acres of buildings, it had 42 acres of farmland that it, it used to feed the uh, 2,000 people that were there. Um, it had its own cemetery, which is in the top right-hand corner here. Um, so all of that was the original 85 acres that they bought from um, a, a solicitor, a lawyer, a landowner, um, William 
totter of Mayfair, and they paid a grand total of 6,850 pounds, which works out to be about 80 pounds an acre. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on some land for 80 pounds an acre? We could do quite well with that right now. So that was the original site. Sorry, Tony, we've got like a... Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Better? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, it, it was the largest facility, and it would cost about 80 pounds an acre, but that's what they were do doing. They actually built two of these. The one in St. Lawrence's in Cater was built exactly like this. Um, when they first built it, Leafson Asylum was constructed over a two-year period, 1968 to 1970. It was, in, uh, it was located in Abbots Langley, uh, which is north of Watford, uh, which at the time that they were building it, the road was actually called Horseshoe Lane. And then they take a section of the road that the hospital was actually in front of, and they change that to Asylum Road. So you could actually write a letter to number 14 Asylum Road in Kings Langley, because Abbots Langley didn't have its own post office yet. So, or you could have just put Leafson Hospital, London. And that was the only thing you needed, because everybody knew where that place was. 85 acres site cost about 6850 uh, 6, It was all designed by the same people. Um, both Caterham and, and Leveson were designed by the same people. Um, they were uh, almost identical. Uh, they were originally constructed for um, uh, 1,500, uh, that shouldn't be 1,560, it was 1,560 individuals, which they called inmates. They did unfortunately start out being called inmates, but there's a very good reason for that. <clears throat> it wasn't because of the way they were treated, but back in the 1850s when they were building big buildings, to house a lot of people, they were always prisons. So when the Metropolitan Asylum Board said, we need you to build some really big buildings to hold a lot of people, the only experience they had building those were prisons. So it had a very much prison look to it. Uh, and, and so they were called inmates. Uh, in fact, the attendants, the original attendants, were called guards because the only uniforms that they were used to making were military and um, uh, police so, and prison guards. So the uniforms they were making all made them look like they were prison guards, so that's how it started. In the 1930s, 1926, 1930, they started calling them patients because they realized that these met mental health issues and learning disabilities were an actual physical health problem, so they, could, so they started treating them just like you would any other physical problem, so they were called patients. In, the 19, in 1948, when the NHS started, they said, look, some of these people are so bad that they're gonna be here for the rest of their lives, they're gonna be residing here like it's their home, so we're gonna start calling them residents. So in 1948, they started calling everybody residents. Now they call us service users. I don't know where that comes from, but that's what I'm calling now, it's a service user. The cost per head to maintain on, and, and clothe everybody that was there, uh, the average cost uh, was seven, uh, seven pence per day, which means that if you had a family member that you wanted to have taken care of at least in an asylum, you have to come up with seven pence a day to pay for their care. The total cost per bed and everything was 84 pounds, four shilling and 10 pence. That's per bed. Um, it was originally made uh, for uh, 1,560 patients. Inmates, there were 860 females and 700 males, which kind of gives you an idea of just which is the craziest sex. No, 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 no. I know, I know. Every time I tell that joke, I usually get one lady in the audience that says, yeah, and it's you men that make us that way. <laughs> All right, fair point, fair point, you know. Um, but yeah, that's just the way they built them. I don't know why it was, you know, whatever. Uh, they started with um, uh, 250 
when they first opened, and within a year they already had 1,968 people there. It was only built for 1,500. It was never ever below 1,500 in its entire existence. It was always overcrowded. Not a surprise, a lot of our hospitals nowadays are the same way, so a lot of things haven't changed over time. So this is what it originally looked like. This were the architectural drawings and everything. So you can see these were the men's wards. These were the women's wards, the main uh, power plant operations, kitchens and everything. Main administration building, and that was the chapel, which was later renamed Chapel of the Good Shepherd, um, which is part of the whole cemetery thing we'll get to, main administration building. What doesn't show up here is the recreation hall, which was built in 1891. So it started off as a Metropolitan Asylum Board until the 1930s, and then it was taken over by the London County Council. So the London County Council started running all the medical facilities in the UK. Um, and then it became, of course, uh, after uh, the war in 1948, the National Health Service took over 160 of these facilities and started running everything. Some of the fun facts about, um, uh, about Leeson Asylum is that kitchen and laundry maids earn 13 pounds per year. I spend 13 pounds 25 on a pack of cigarettes every day. So I'm like smoking their yearly wage, which is like really terrible. Assistant medical officer, 150. The chaplain earned 200. Uh, medical superintendent, the guy that ran the entire place, 500. And staff were expected to live um, on site. Uh, if they choose to live off site, then they did get an allowance um, uh, for uh, like you know, cover rent, coal, gas, milk, and potatoes. Now, I worked for the council for about three years, and I think they would have rather wanted to pay me in potatoes, because that's what it felt like. Um, there's also some fun facts about it. Uh, season one, episode five of uh, Porridge, starring Ronnie Baker, was actually filmed uh, on the uh, grounds of the um, uh, Leeson Hospital. And that is a scene from the actual film, our TV show. Um, uh, the episode is called Ways and Means. Uh, and they needed to have, they needed a place where they could film outside of, um, what's the name of the prison in Porridge? Slate, uh, Slate Prison, that's it. Slate prison. So they needed something that looked like a prison. Again, it was built to look like a prison because it was built by people who built prisons. So they needed to film. They got permission. They got to film outside. This is one of the scenes and everything. And the opening sequence of Porridge, where it says Slate prison over the doors. Does anybody know where that was filmed? That's St. Albans. St. Albans. So that was, the, that was the jailhouse in St. Albans. And they just put a sign saying Slate prison. And that became that. Um, so... This is, uh, we'll go back one. So this building here, um, this was the old art therapy block. Uh, it originally started off as the sports pavilion in 1870 because the sports, the hospital sports pitch was right here. So that was the pavilion. It later became the uh, art therapy block. That's what it looked like back then. We had to do a little bit of fighting to save it because they wanted to tear it down and put up some really gaudy looking, you know, log cabin thing and put a cafe in there. But we did manage to convince uh, Three Rivers District Council to save it, so they just tidied it up, and they put a cafe at one end and the Leafston uh, Bicycle Hub on the other end. So we were man we were able to save that building. Um, unfortunately, it's only one of five buildings that was able to save. So this is the main administration building, um, and you can see uh, the ground floor was your main reception, main entrance. Now, when it was originally built, right here in the middle was a circular driveway, so that was the main entrance you went into. The reception areas were off to the side. The uh, first floor here was all the offices. Right behind these windows right here was the um, files clerk, so this is where all the medical files were. This is now was turned into uh, residential housing. Very expensive, very nice residential housing, 12-foot high ceilings, all decorated. It's very nice. 
And as soon as somebody moves in there, I usually get an email or a phone call saying, oh, we just moved into the old Eastern Asylum building. What part do we live in? And I actually have the original floor plan, so I can say, oh, you know, you live here, you live where the offices were. The guy that lives right here, he called me once, uh, when I, I met him, he lived there for a while. But when he met me, uh, he said, oh, I live here. And I said, oh, I'll look it up and everything. And I found out that that's actually where they used to store the beer, wine, and ale. And he goes, funny enough, there's still a lot of beer, wine, and ale. And I like, oh, okay. Um, uh, so this is the floor plan. This is how we can tell. You can see the maintenance administration building. It ends right about there. The rest of this was all torn down, but that's still there right there. So that's how we know where a lot of these places are. Um, I didn't highlight, but there, you know, there's your usual stuff. There's the kitchens, there's the clerk's offices, there's the head superintendent. The head superintendent's office, or oops. The, um, <coughs> this right here was the head superintendent, the head doctor. That was his private apartment. But we only know of one incident where the head superintendent of the hospital actually lived in his own private apartment. They usually lived off-site somewhere in like fancy house in town. Um, so that's what it looked like. This is the recreation hall. This was built in 1891. This is when they realized that recreational activities was good therapy, not only for the patients, but for the staff. So they built this recreation hall so they could have music, cards. There was actually 40, 54 pounds allocated every year for, for cards and board games and things like that. Um, but it became, it became the place to go to in 1891, 18 the 1900s, if you got invited by the head of the hospital to an event that was going on there, that was almost like an invitation to Buckingham Palace. That was the social thing, because the Palace Theater in Watford wasn't even built for five years after this. So this was the largest hall, the fanciest place, and that's how fancy it looked. So that's what it looked like in 1902, that's when they decked it all out, they were obviously having some big you know, event there. Um, I calculated that you could, in theater seating, you could put over a thousand people in there to watch a show. Now you're seeing this photograph from the stage looking out, and then you're looking down there towards the stage. This was the place to go. This is where they had the pantos. This is where they had the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the staff band. This is where they had the, the patient band. So this was the place to go back in those days and everything. This is the chapel. It later became called the Chapel of the Good Shepherd. You can see the ladies. These are the women's uh, buildings over here. Um, I don't remember this. Um, so that's what it looked like. Uh, I believe that photograph is early 1940. So I guess about 1940. That's what it looked like, covered with ivy and everything. Nowadays, people argue whether we should have ivy on building or shouldn't we? Some cut it down, some don't. You know. But that's what it looked like back in those days. This is what the interior looked like. Um, this is a very old photograph, and this is back in the 70s when it was all colorized. Um, there is an organization that uh, took this building over in... The hospital closed in 1995. In 1997, an organization called DEMAND, which stands for Design, Engineering, and Manufacturing for the Disabled, they heard a rumor that that building was going to be demolished, so they bought it. And they had found a very wealthy benefactor, and they bought the whole thing and everything. And I always find it very interesting um, that for over 152 years now, from the time this facility opened until this present day, there has been some facility on that site that was doing something to help people with disabilities. As far as I know, it's the longest running institute, you know, still doing the same thing for 150 some years. Um, and this is the organization demand uh, design engineering 
manufacturing, so they're still there. Um, this is what they did is, is uh, downstairs, uh, this is where they put their factory and everything. The only thing they did is they put a floor right across the top of these beams. So their offices are upstairs, and the rest of it is, is, is down here. There are workshops and everything. But they were very, very much aware of the historic value of this building, so they didn't do anything much to the interior, so they kept a lot of it. And there actually are a good dozen very, very unique, rare artifacts in there hanging on their walls. So if they ever move out, I will be the first one at the door going, please donate them to us, um, which I'm sure they will. Uh, so that's, that's what they did to that. Oh, I forgot to say. These were the original pews for the church when it was built in 1868. And when demand moved in there, what they did is they disassembled all the, the pews and brought them all upstairs, put them all back together, and put them up as bookcases. So the original pews are still there in the building, uh, which is pretty amazing. So that's what it looked like um, um, when it was taken over by demand. This is what it looked like during the war effort. Now, the Legion Asylum was there for World War I and World War II, and then like any big facility, when you needed to house a lot of people going off to battle, that's where they all went. So we had a lot of military people coming to the hospital, taking it over, they were billeting them everywhere they could. They were training in the nearby fields, they were training up in Abbots Langley, and then they go into Watford, they get on the trains, go to, the, uh, go to London, get on the boat to go to war. Later they went to um, the um, Eastern Aerodrome and were flown uh, over to France to fight there, the Canadian Air Force did. Um, one of the units that we had there was the London Scottish 1st Battalion, this photograph was taken right in front of the main building, which you can see in the background there. Uh, so we did have a lot of troops there, both from World War I and World War II. One of the other uh, military uh, battalions that was there was the post office rifles. Now, I always thought this was very interesting because the last thing we would do in the United States is give anybody in the post office a rifle. <laughs> we haven't had a lot of luck with that. But you guys made a whole battalion of it, so I thought that was pretty good. Um, this is what your basic uh, 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 asylum uh, mental hospital would have looked like back in, in the day. Uh, again, you can see you know, these gentlemen look more like prison guards than attendants. Uh, but that's just the way the uniforms were designed and made and everything. Um, you can see how it was all laid out. The first floor of every building uh, would have been the medical unit. So if you had a medical condition, you would have been there. The second two floors would have been dormitories like this, with the exception of one building, which was in the high security, locked, locked doors, padded rooms. You know, this was for the people that were a danger to themselves or others. Um, and... Uh, Oh, okay, so this is what the whole site would have looked like after it was built and everything. Um, you can see we have um, the recreation hall there, the chapel, the buildings. I don't know if you can see the names, um, but this building right here is of interest. This is, um, well, when they first opened, the, the, the buildings were just called blocks. So you had block A, block B, and it went A, B, C, D, E, F, and then you'd have the floor. So if you worked on B1 or B2, you'd know where to go. And the way they got there was these uh, main corridors right here. So these corridors were a half a mile long, and you'd walk all the way down there, you'd check in at the main gate, you'd go get your stuff, you'd walk all the way down these hallways, say you were working down here in Pulver, Pelican, or, or Peacock, and you'd have to walk all the way down there. Spoke to a lot of nurses that worked the night shift, and they said that hallway was the spookiest thing in the world. At three o'clock in the morning, nobody went down that corridor, both of them. And 
well, I won't, I won't get in. There's a whole, there's a whole another presentation about the ghost stories we've heard from here. So, um, but a couple of interesting things. This building right here was, uh, this is the mail ward uh, in the 19, in 1948 when the NHS took over. Shortly after that, they were, they changed the names because they didn't want A and B. So they called it Kiwi Kestrel and Kingfisher. Um, back in, so we get these dates right. April of 1894, a gentleman by the name of Aaron Kosminski was committed to Leaston Hospital after being kicked out of two other hospitals, Mile End and Colony Hatch. He was committed to Mile End very, very shortly after the last Whitechapel murder. Yeah. His brother, Wolf, Wolfgang, got him out, took him home. They couldn't handle him. They committed him back to Colony Hatch. Colony Hatch couldn't handle him. They sent him to Leaston. The reports of his admissions into Leaston are very, very interesting reading you can really get an idea of why he might be the top, one of the top um, uh, you know, suspects for being uh, Jack the Ripper, just reading the medical reports. Um, so that was, this was the building that he would have stayed in. Again, that was the high security one, padded cells, locked doors and everything, because he was, by the time he got to Leaveston, he was so psychotic, he was a danger to himself and pretty much anybody else. Um, so that's, that's where he started. At the very end of this row here are three, the very last block right there is uh, Pulver, Pelican, and Peacock. The bottom floor, um, i got to get this right. Pulver is the bottom floor, which is the medical unit. And in January, February, March, March of 1919, that was where Aaron Kaminsky died uh, from, the, well, his mental, health, his, mental, his mental health condition was caused by what the paperwork says was syphilis. Um, so he had a, a, a sexually transmitted disease that just hit his brain in, and that's where he died. This is just what, what I've read, so I'm, you know, it's just what I what I know. I'm, I'm not a ripperologist, so. Um, but that's where he, he um, that's where he passed away. And uh, right up here is East Lane Cemetery, which is the urban legend of where he was buried. Now I did read something just recently that said he was buried there, but that his family came and got him really not didn't happen if his family had the money and they had connections with him so they knew who the family was they would have contacted him he would have gone right to East Hand Cemetery the hospital would have just put him in the ground and then said oh now we're going to bring him up and entertain him whatever it didn't really happen that way um, if you had family and you had money that's when you got a headstone that's when you got uh, you know uh, taken and buried in a, in, a, in a family plot or something if you had family and you had the money to do it which he did because his, this right, his uncle was the coat maker for Prince Albert, <clears throat> which is the whole the whole story behind why Aaron Kosminski was one of the suspects. Because apparently his family put him up there because they didn't want the word to get out uh, that his uncle was making coats for Prince Albert, uh, Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, right? Prince Albert. Yeah. So uh, he was the coat maker for them. And he even changed his name from Kaminsky to something else so he could put another name in the label. Uh, but that's why, allegedly, they, uh, they hid away uh, Aaron Kosminski in, in, in Leafson, because uh, they didn't want that to get out there. Um, oh, what we... Uh, oops. Because all the names of the buildings, one of the ways that we like to uh, keep the history alive in the area is uh, when they build roads and everything, we always name the roads after a famous person or a famous place. So what they did is when the developers came in here, Three Rivers District Council kind of made it a bit of a, a planning application condition 
that they name all the roads and everything after some of the buildings. So that's exactly what they did. So you have Mallard Road, uh, uh, Lapwing, Oriole, Peacock. These were all the men's wards. Um, in, on the other side of the road, you have Stewart's Lodge, um, Stewart's Close. These are all named after Dr. Roy, Roy H. Stewart, who was like big time in the mental health learning disabilities back in the 20s and 30s. He was like the leading uh, authority in, on the subject, which is why he was the head superintendent. You also see Magnolia, Heather. Those were the trees that were lining uh, the outside uh, of the property. So you had all the big maple trees, Hawthorne and everything. The ladies' wards, uh, when the NHS took over, the ladies' wards, wards were named after flowers, daisy, daffodil, you know, like that. But we can't find any streets or anything named after that. You know, so that's the only one that's missing from that is just that one side there. So, um, and again, this is this is what it looked like. This road right here, this is a silent road. Uh, originally started as Horseshoe Lane, which ran all the way from North Watford through Garston by the Horseshoe Pub, all the way up to Abbots Langley. Uh, then, when the hospital was built between 1868 and 1870, they changed it to a silent road. So it became a silent road um, up until 1949. Uh, and that's when the name changed. Somewhere between 1947 and 49, they changed it to College Road. But not because the hospital was there, not because, the, although Leaston, Leaston well, it was called, by then it was called Leaston Mental Hospital, so it changed its name to Leaston Mental Hospital. By then it had, already, it had already established itself as the very first place in the UK to actually train mental health nurses. Before, you train as a nurse for two years, they'd give you the keys to the mental health ward and go, have a nice day. And then you just did whatever. And they said, no, we really need to train people, nurses, on how to deal with mental health learning disability patients. And this is where it all started. In fact, this little building right there was the start of the whole two-year mental health nurses training program in Hertfordshire County, which then spread throughout the, the UK. But that's, that little building is where it all started right there. But they didn't change, they didn't change the name of the road from side of road to College Road because of that. They changed it because of the workhouse on the other side. Now, this is St. Pancreas's workhouse, St. Pancreas workhouse, named after Pancreatus, who was a, a third century, 14-year-old martyr. Um, uh, so they, that, he, he was also known as the patron saint of orphans and young people. So that's how he became. So anytime you see St. Pancreas, it's named after him, and it's taking care of children. So this was, a, this was the the orphanage, workhouse, industrial school that was on the other side of the road. During the war, after the war, after World War II, they needed to train teachers so quickly and so because we've lost all our teachers that they actually established Leafston Green Training College. And this was the first graduating class. And this is only one third of the people. This is one third of the photograph. It's the only thing I can fit. So double those numbers, and that was the first graduating class. But that's why Asylum Road got named College Road, because of the Leafs and Green Teachers College, which is a whole other thing. So when it was College Road, this is what it looked like in uh, 2018. This is looking up the hill towards the hospital, which would have been on the left-hand side. This is what it looked like. Uh, this is what Asylum Road looked like back in 1910. Um, and you can kind of see... Um, you can kind of see the door here, the window there, and the gutter there. There's doors, doors there, windows there, gutter still there. So that's how we match that one up. Now that's what it looked like back in 1910. This was right in front of the hospital. This was taken in 1902, I believe. 
Um, so the entrance into the hospital is right here. This was the big building staff housing. If you were a senior manager, you had family, you know, they'd give you a nice little room there, nice little place there. Across the road, you had the same thing. This is where the orphanage was. Again, nice big building there if you were a head nurse or something. Um, so I kind of I kind of matched that up. That's what it looked like, I think, in probably around 2017. And the only reason I know that is during one of the walks, we had stopped at the Swan Pub, which is where this photograph used to hang, until they were doing some renovations, and it went missing. And I went to the landlord, and I go, Neil, what happened to the photograph of the street? And he goes, yeah, the head office came in, and you know, they started doing all this renovation and everything. He says, but I saved that picture for you. And he reached under the bar and he had it all wrapped up for me. So that's, that's how I got that one. I still love Neil to this day. He saved probably the only photograph we have of this road. Um, but you can see what it looked like there. Um, and the only reason we know that is because I was doing, we went to the Swan Pubs uh, halfway between the four and a half hour brief walk through time I used to do. Um, and as we were walking down the road, the guy goes, you know, this is the, this is the entrance into, um, or, well, when we got to this point, he goes, well, that's the entrance. And I go, no, it isn't. The, the entrance was up by the Swan Pub. And he goes, no, it isn't. And I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, you see these two things here? And you see these? They're still there. And I didn't even know. I've been giving this lecture for years, and I never even knew that until this guy pointed it out during a walk. And I went, yep, that's still there. Those are still there. That's the big gate. And that's how we know that that's the entrance. Now, I always... I always found it interesting because this is uh, 1910, and you can see way down the road there is the horse and cart. There's a horse and cart, so I thought, oh, you know, I mean, cars didn't really come to Britain until what, 1850s, 1860s, and early 1900s, so everybody was still using horses and carts. And I thought it was very interesting, and again, I didn't know this until years afterwards, but when you look at this, I got a car right in the exact same place. <laughs> I go, how lucky is that? <laughs> and that's... That's where the roundabout into Catherine Place and everything, the new roundabout. But it's actually right where that guy is. And I, I, that was amazing. So, um, But I always wondered, because when I looked at the photograph and everything, I said, oh, that's pretty interesting, because I can see how it originated over here in the UK. The driver's on the right-hand side of the cart, and the cart is on the left-hand side of the road. Now, being an American, I was a little concerned when I started driving over here, you know. Because being on the right-hand side of the car and then on the left-hand side of the road. But then I realized that back home, after five or six beers, I was on the left-hand side of the road anyway. <laughs> so no big deal. No, I would never drink and drive over here because your, your drunk driving laws are really, really strict. In fact, I was out with some friends last weekend, knew I had too much to drink and decided to take a bus home. Which was really funny because I've never driven a bus before. So. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And I am walking tonight, so... Anyway, so the horse and cart, I thought it was, um, I thought it was really interesting, um, you know, when I said, and I go, so I wonder how long that guy's actually been doing the job, you know, because he was probably delivering, you know, barrels, cast barrels of ale to the Swan Pub, which had been around, well, since 1891, right across from the hospital, somebody built a pub, great place to put a pub, so maybe he was delivering, and I thought, well, how long has he been doing that job, and then I did a little bit more research into it, and I found out that he was very new at it. Oh, really? Oh. That's all right. I just spent six shows being booed in Canto. You can, you can say whatever. That was a shock. Um, so now we get real quickly to my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, this was something, this was a project that became very, very personal to myself. 
because when I started working at, uh, at Leeson Country Park as a park ranger, the East Lane Cemetery was still there. It had been pretty much forgotten since um, uh, 1959. They just gave up on it. And I always thought, well, how many people are here? I looked for records, I looked for information. Nobody knew about anything. The records were gone, they were all lost in a flood, whatever, we couldn't find any. I said, well, there's people here, we need to do something. And I tried for years as the park ranger to do it. Then when I was elected as a district councilor, I kept trying to do something. That didn't work, but we finally got there. So this is where it was located. Um, it was an off-site cemetery because, uh, where am I here? Uh, Chapel of the Good Shepherd was here. Obviously, you couldn't put a, a cemetery right in front of that. So they actually allocated this space here. You can see some interesting features. This is the pig farm. Because they had 42 acres. They did their own harvesting. So they had acres for they had cows, pigs. They had their own horses to do all the plowing and everything. 42 acres of crops, um, all your basics. And that's how they fed 2,000 people back then. They didn't have Tesco delivery. So they had to do it all themselves. Um, this is the original sports pitch. Uh, this was the second one they built in uh, the early 19... No, excuse me. They built this one in 1912 when the Leafs and the Hospital Football Club became a formal member of the local Hertfordshire League. So they had to build a specific, you know, for, for the team. This was just a general one for patients and everybody. Tennis court. Um, these two buildings over here are very interesting because they were the tuberculosis wards. Every hospital that was being built of that size always came with a tuberculosis board because they didn't know what else to do. Well, get them out into the country. You know, three miles north of Watford back then was out in the country. It was about a two-hour carriage ride just to get there. And they get, get them out into the country, breathe fresh air. Uh, we know that doesn't work now, but they had, this was uh, Jasmine, and that's Red Wing. That was the male one over there, and that was the tuber tuberculosis wards. This building right down here was the isolation ward called Iris. So if you had any kind of a communicable polio, you know, anything like that, and you were suffering from mental health, that's where you would, you would stay. The, um, this building, these buildings right here were the nurses' bungalows. So nurses that were going to training would stay there, do their two years of training, apply for a job, then move into the shepherd, uh, shepherd housing here. Um, but I heard from a lot, of, a lot of the nurses that worked there in the 60s and 70s said that place was a dump. But prior to that is where the nurses... Um, where the nurses lived. Now, if you were assigned to the, the um, isolation ward because you could be contagious, you weren't allowed to go back into general population. So a lot, there was one written case back in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, of a nurse called Nurse, nurse Willoughby. She was a sister, but she wasn't, they called them sisters, but they weren't religious sisters, they were nursing sisters, which is something I, I learned. Um, but she uh, lived there and worked there and she did that for 27 years. And then unfortunately, she actually did catch one of the diseases and she passed away um, after you know, many, many years of service. But if you happen to go there in the evening and you happen to walk down this path here, it has been reported that a figure dressed in white will be walking from this building across there and into the woods. It was almost photographed once. But it has been reported on at least three different occasions that figure has been there. But that's part of our ghost walk, so you have to wait for that one. So this is what the, uh, the um, um, cemetery uh, looked like. Area A is where it started first. So in 1868, uh, when they opened it in, in 1870, the Bishop, the Bishop of Rochester came down, consecrated it, blessed it, um, which we just happened to recreate uh, uh, just here recently, last year. Um, 
So that's when it started. Unfortunately, you can see where the sewage treatment plant is. Okay, that's where all the sewage from the hospital came down to the sewage treatment plant. They would do whatever treatment they would, and then they would pump it up, up the hill. Uh, they would pump it up the hill this way to a large tank, and then it would be gravity-fed back into the fields as fertilizer. Sounds really good, until you realize that most of that is all sand and flint and chalk. So it leaked right back into the water system, which was pumped up to the hospital, and in 1888 caused a cholera epidemic which, according to most researchers and records, um, caused the death of 5,000 people. So what do you do when you have 5,000 people pass away within a year or two from this? You have to find a mass grave. And that's what they did. So you see where the blue line is? That's actually the mass grave. And we now have that documented as being over, over 5,000 people are buried there. You had the, in area A, you had about, uh, the records, well, we can prove 24 people in section A, but behind that, there's over 5,000 5, unnamed people that are buried there. This is where everything started to get really interesting as far as, well, who are they? Where's the records? Nobody knows. Um, so they closed that in 1905, that first part of the cemetery, section A, they closed it, said, right, we've got to move across the road. They bought an extra acre from the farmer, and they started the new cemetery in 1905. So area B was the very first place. So that started in, in 1905. Um, and if, if you look at all the dates of people and headstones that we have found in that area, they're all around you know, 1911 and 1919. So if Aaron Kosminski was actually ever buried anywhere, he would be buried in plot number B. And if I ever find any records to prove that, I will be a happy camper. I'm going to stand at the front gate, charge everybody a pound to come and see it. I'm tired of it. Then they went and moved across to Area C, which you can see there, that was the 1940s, 50s. Then they went across to Area D, and at that time they decided, the hospital made a decision, and they said, look, we can't afford to be doing full body burials, so we're going to go to cremations. Funny enough, it happened to correspond with the construction and opening of a brand new, cemetery, a brand new crem crematorium just down the road. So they got a package deal. So they started doing cremations but the hospital would put a stone on top of the cremation site. They all disappeared in 1959, which apparently it was easier just to move all the headstones and let them go, let them get covered up than, than to take care of it. And that's what they did. They got permission from the Diocese of St. Albans to move all the headstones to the side so they could just run their tractor over there and make it easier. And that's when we lost everything. So those are the four sections. Um, there's actually five, sorry. But this is what the original one looked like. You can see some of these older stones. This is right next to the sewage treatment plant. These are the older stones. The oldest one we could find was 1889, and that lady was 92 years old when she passed away. The youngest one we ever found was a year and a half on the other side. So this is what started it all. This is where I wanted to really find out who's there. Why has this place not been taken care of? So this is what we were left with. This is from... from 1959, when they moved all the stones and everything, this is what was left. When the hospital closed in 1995 and Three Rivers District Council took over, they didn't do anything to it. When I started as a park ranger in 2008, they wouldn't even let me take volunteers up there to clean it. They didn't want to know about it. That's fine. I knew I'd get there eventually. So at some point, Watford Museum called me up and said, hey, we got some photographs of the cemetery. I said, great. So that's what it used to look like. Now this was taken in 1985. 
Um, and you can see there are some, some of the cremation stones here. And you can't see them in the other photograph, because they've all been covered up. But you can see them there, so at least we had a starting point. We knew there were stones in the middle there, you can kind of see them. You can see there, so we said, okay, we're going to do some. So it took me about a year to get this all organized. I had to go out to the University of Yorkshire, York, University of York's archaeology department. I had to train with them for two weeks. I had to study with the um, Discovering England's Burial Sites Committee. I had to talk to the Diocese of St. Albans and go, this is what we want to do. We want to take an archaeological, do an archaeological survey of the cemetery and find out what we can find. We thought we'd maybe find about 30, 35 stones, because that's what you could kind of see. Everybody said, yeah, great idea, no problem. So I assembled 16 of my fellow volunteers, and we spent three very cold, very wet, very miserable days out in the middle of the cemetery. And we started uncovering things. First we uncovered a row here, and then we uncovered a row behind it. And then we uncovered a row behind that. And then we uncovered a row behind that. Then we uncovered a row behind that. And then we found some more. And then we started keeping track of them. And by the end of the three days, we compiled 573 gravestones. We had located and restored and identified the names of 573 people that were buried in that cemetery. And that's kind of what we were looking at. Now these bits and pieces were scattered all over the cemetery. You find a piece here, you find a piece over there. So we had to locate them, we had to put them all back together. We had to get a hold of a proper monument mason. Because no, not anybody can just fix these things. You have to be a registered monument mason through the diocese to touch these things. Um, so this is what we came up with. We uncovered 510 cremation markers, 40 names of patients and staff that were at rest there. 23 monuments that were relocated, and we were able, to, although we found them all over, we were able to identify from other records just what part of the cemetery they should have been in, A, B, C, or D. Couldn't find the exact plot, but we knew that they were in A. So we thought, fine, it's, you know, at least something to work with. So we ended up with 573 names that, recorded, that are recorded in what we call um, the East Lane Cemetery uh, Register of Names. So it is, as far as we know, it is the only record that exists today of these 573 people. And then I found a local amateur genealogist who said, oh, I, well, she didn't actually say that. I talked to her anyway, so I guess she just volunteered. But I said, Jill, I go, do you want to just look up some names for me? And she goes, yeah. So I sent her, I sent her a list of 573. <laughs> I didn't hear for, from her for a week. So I thought, oh, well, she didn't like that. And then she started sending me stuff. So we now have details of all 573, no, correction, 560. There's 13 we couldn't find because the records are too old. But we now have a record of when they were there, who their family was, who their parents was, and it's the only record that exists to this day of that cemetery. So this is what it kind of looks like now. We also, um, through, uh, this, was a, this was a grant that took, it took a year to write, the Three Rivers District Council Ledger Department and I worked on writing a grant to get money from the Heritage Lottery Fund to do all this work. It was 1.2 million we were asking for, um, and it took a year to write the 92-page application. They gave us the money, we started working on it, we were able to put a stone here that says, in memory, in memory of all those um, who are at rest at the uh, chapel, uh, 
chapel of the Good Shepherd East Lane Cemetery and the dates and everything. So now they have a proper place there. These are what we did with the stones. We knew what part of the cemetery they should have been in. We couldn't find the plots, so we would just put them on the edge. So they're permanently fixed there and everything. Um, I think I can't remember the oldest. 19, I think 1917 is the oldest one. Um, so that's what we did in, you got to remember, because we just had an anniversary, uh, the 12th of January, 2020. So three years ago is when we did all this. And it took me a year, almost six, months, six to eight months, just to compile all the information and then to do all the work and everything. So it took about a year to get this done. Um, so we were quite happy with uh, what, we, what we had done. Uh, and so was the local people. Because we also found out that there are three families that live in an area that have relatives buried in the cemetery and didn't know where their stones were. Now I can take them to exactly where their relatives are buried. And that's happened three times now. So that was very good. I enjoyed that. Uh, but we weren't done yet, because about a year, two years after that, we found another one hiding underneath a tree that we missed the first time around. So about a year and a half, two years later, we found this one, um, which we had restored and, um, and put in the same place. Uh, so, the, the, oh, this was the, other, this was the other one on the other side of the wall, because that's the lich gate there. These, these are all the cremation markers that we found. Um, and then I got a call about a year later uh, from the Watford Museum, and they said, we've just been downstairs in our boiler room behind the door. There's this big slate, and it says something about a memory of somebody about a hospital. And I go, okay. And we think it's yours. So they sent me a photograph, and I started doing some checking, and sure enough, this was the war memorial for World War I and World War II for the 24 people, I think. No, not that many. Um, for the people who worked at the hospital, went away to war, and never came back. This used to hang on the wall in the main entrance of the hospital until the hospital closed in 1995, and everybody thought it was missing. And the museum found it downstairs in their boiler room, so we put it up on that wall there. So at the end of the day, we now have a tribute to all the people that served. We now have a cemetery, uh, and we have this register of names. Uh, this is the oldest one there. Uh, so this was probably one of my most personally satisfying and, and you know, something that I'm not going to forget for the rest of my life, you know, because when somebody can contact me and go, I'm looking for a great-great-grandparent, and I can now take, look at the list and go, your grandfather is buried in number, you know, A49, it just means so much to them, and it's absolutely fantastic, so, anyway, I started all this research and everything in 2008, I also started talking in 2008. I haven't stopped yet, but that's okay. Uh, I started all this in 2008. Uh, I stopped about a year and a half ago when I moved to North Yorkshire to take care of my 91-year-old mother, who actually is probably more active than I am, but that's another story. Um, so what do you do with 14 years of research and 14 years of all this information and everything? Well, you put it in a book. So I spent four years writing a book. Um, like I said, it was self-published. So I did all the work myself and everything. It was a really good experience, and not one I will be doing anytime soon again. <laughs> it takes a lot to write a book. Uh, I didn't just turn it over to an editor. I didn't turn it over to a professional writer. I did it all myself and everything. But these contain this, this book contains the actual first-hand accounts and stories of the people that worked at the hospital. So when people talk about what it was like to be in an asylum back then, and how it was a terrible place, and how it was this, listen to the people that actually worked there, because their stories are in this book, and it, it tells a totally different picture of the dedication and the caring that these people have to work at a place like this. So that's what I did. I put it all together in there. Everybody says, when is part two come? When is, when is chapter two? God, no, it's not coming. No. 
Although I might write a children's version of it, just you know, for fun. Um, but um, so that's what you do with all that. And uh, that finally, uh, to your relief, is the end of my presentation. And that's the end of part one, because you already know there's a part two. Because I, I got to finally, after three years, after pandemic, we got to get together. Yep. They waited, his, his group in, in um, Shiswell Green. Green waited almost three years to see part two of the presentation. And she would not let me go. She kept all the time. She goes, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And we finally did. So part two basically takes, uh, uh, takes into account the Heritage Trail and all the history of the Leafs and Film Studios, which is not Warner Brothers. So that's, um, that's pretty much my presentation right there. I'm more than happy to answer any questions. I think we're going to take a break. Oh, that great great talk we've, uh, we're going to open the, uh, the floor up to questions so um, just for the sake of we have a couple of a few people online I'm not going to repeat your questions so they can hear it and yeah we're happy happy to take any questions that you have go for it my question is during the war the two war periods when they were stationing the troops there what happened to the residents so there's a question about what happened to the residents of the war period basically what they did is is they didn't accept any any more that were in in the hospital at the time and they literally took over every space they could so a lot of closets were used but they basically handled that situation by just not accepting any people they really limited you know like whatever so was there the ones that were already there yeah, yeah so that was it and then they took those and they would actually put them in other parts of the, of the hospital you know like outbuildings and you know, like the um, tuberculosis ward, they would put the patients anywhere so they could put the troops, which were numbered in the thousands, I mean, the thousands of, of, of military people coming through that hospital. Um, so yeah, they would just kind of shift things around, but it was when the, mil when the Ministry of Defense, you know, when the military goes, we're taking over your hospital. <laughs> Yeah. It's not much you can do. It's like the same thing with the, with the orphanage across the road. The Ministry of Education said, we need it for a training facility, and they took over the whole thing. You know, so... Well, thank you very much for entertaining well. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Um, I'd like to know if you managed to escape, which I'm sure some did. Were you, and then when you went to your brothers or your sisters, were you brought back? Yes. So the, the, oh, question, the simple answer is yes. There's a funny story behind that. The okay. question: the people who escaped and the, what happened when if, if people brought it back? Did they? The truth. The real truth to that is. The facility was so open to begin with that nobody really escaped. There wasn't really a, there wasn't really escapes per se. They did climb walls and you know escape at night. If they wanted to walk out, the, you know if they wanted to walk out the door, they did. But they didn't. So there weren't a lot of escapes. But they had a. They first started off with a steam-powered siren, which they had. Yeah, this was the warning. So you know the the, the the local community knew if you heard this, there was an escape. So they thought. But they started off with a steam-powered uh, siren. They actually went to one of those at one really? point. But yes, they, the old crank. Remember the old crank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They went to one of those, but they weren't. Oh, cool. So they had a steam one, but it sounded too much like the trains. So they had to go to another. They had to go to a bell. So every Friday at three o'clock, they would ring the bell <coughs> as a test. And everybody in the community thought at three o'clock every Friday, Mason had to because that's what they taught. They actually had they actually had drills in the local schools. If you heard the alarm, you actually had to gather up the children because a patient had escaped. But surely if you were put there because of the medical condition, 
develop or whatever you want to leave, if you want to get out and see your children or see They weren't of the mind to actually, you know, they said they didn't want to be there, and everything, but they weren't of the mind of the, actually doing it. If the husband wanted to get rid of his wife, and you've got to put him in the asylum, surely they want to get out. Well, yes, but I mean, it was a secure, I mean, it was a, a as secure a facility as it could be. So it wasn't like, you know, that easy. And you're saying they were free to walk around? Yeah, they walked around the grounds and everything. In fact, I talked to, I talked to two, uh, two ladies, my brother now, but when they used to walk past the um, front gate of the uh, hospital on their way to Parmenter School, which was down um, High Elms Lane, there were two gentlemen that always would be there, and they would carry their books. And then they'd come back to the hospital. And there was never anything, you know, I mean, nowadays, if two guys, you know, kind of carry your books to school, you know, but it wasn't like that. It was, it was actually not that, people have this, this um, uh, idea or, you know, this concept of, of this place being horrible and straightjackets, it, it wasn't. It was, it was, you talk to the people that work there, and it, it wasn't, you know. But a lot of husbands got rid of their wives by getting rid of No, I, I, no I'm not going to, I'm going to say a lot did. It was something that could be done, yeah. but you don't really have any records of, of how many times no, it was done. You can't just get out and go, you want to see your children, surely you want to Well, yes, but if, if the doors are locked at night and there's somebody standing at the front gate, you know, they wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't, they wouldn't be putting that much. And, and to be honest, the people that were there was, were of the, because of the learning disability, Learning disabilities that the hospital became very much known for treating or dealing with later, they didn't have the mental capacity to figure out how to make a break. So, you know, and quite frankly, back in the early days, a hospital like that, three meals a day, one bath a week, something to do, kind of a nice place to be compared to living on the street, you know. So it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of, you know, lock them up. Living on the streets would be quite well off, wouldn't they? So had to, someone had to pay seven pounds, seven fee a day. So they weren't homeless. Well, if, yeah, if you, if you had a family member, you know, that, yeah. that, that if you have, if you had a, a mental illness or learning disability and, and, and a lot of families, a lot of people back in those days, they didn't know how to handle that. You know, so they didn't know what to do with a, with a child with autism, not like we do now, you know, autism, learning disabilities, ADHD. So they, you know, they would make arrangements to have them, you know, stay there. But at the time, that was, you know, the best they could do. But they would be brought back. We didn't get, yeah. Well, again, there's, <laughs> I, I, a lot of the people I talked to, I mean, like, you know, the patients would like walk up to Abbott's Langley to the village. You know, and then they walk back. Or if they walked up to the village, or and they were, you know, uh, despondent or you know not behaving appropriately, this, they would just call the hospital and go, "Oh, Bob's up here again." In many cases of, of, of people of patients going over to the Swan Pub, you know, to have a pint or whatever, and they'd have a fit or, or they, you know, and they just everybody knew what number to call. They call the hospital and go, "Yeah, Tom's over here. Can you come in?" They send a nurse up there and they go get him. Patients used to get. They used to have little books. Um, and it was a day out book, and you had permission to go into town. So you take the bus, and, 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 and you know, and you have this little book, you know, giving you permission to go out into town uh, to go shopping or whatever, and they come back. But if you got caught somewhere where you weren't supposed to be, well, that was naughty, you know. But it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of. There were only, you know, certain people and, and certain buildings that were the lockdown, you know, um, and those were the people that were really, in, you know, a danger to themselves or others, and you. That's why you kept them locked up. Yeah. They weren't all. Pardon? But a lot of them weren't. 
Oh no, oh no, definitely not. No, there was no. Um, it was just your, you know, what, what do I want to say? Basic mental health issues, but you know, um, depression, uh, psychosis, you know, paranoid schizophrenia. Yes, they had all that, um, you know, but they weren't all locked up in strict gardens. You know, it had 20 acres of gardens, which you know, there were 62 patients that took care of the, the gardening. Um, there were probably the same amount that took care of, helped out in the kitchen or the laundry, you know, things like that. So they had things, and they, they towards. After the NHS took over, they were actually making a little pocket money. So they would make things as part of their therapy, hangers, uh, stools, um, dolls. Uh, we have one stuffed um, teddy bear that was made by the patients there. And they would sell these at the, at the yearly fair. And, and that was their pocket money. Drugs, treatment? No, they had, they had everything. They had all the, well, what, what was the latest treatment at the time? Now you have to remember, if you go back to the 1800s, you know, they were doing, this is what I tell everybody. They were doing the best they could do with what they knew at the time. Were they doing shock therapy? Yes. Were they doing cold water immersion therapy? Yes. Were they doing lobotomies? Yes. Not that often, but it was what they knew at the time. As it evolved, got better. Yes, thank you. Um, why would somebody be taken to Cody Hatch and why would someone be taken here? Is it geographical? And if would someone be transferred? You said Kosminski was transferred. What was better at Leveston that that would happen? Mainly the first question. Why the geographical servings of East and West London? Um, the short answer from what I know is yes. If, if geographically, if, if you... If your relatives were closer to Leaveston, they would move you to Leaveston so you could see your relatives. Um, but Leaveston was a very well-known, very recognized, very respected facility. So depending on what you were suffering from at the time, they may be the place to go. So they had a specialty, especially later on for learning disabilities. Um, they were, um, it, it also, uh, one of the doctors there in the very early 60s started a, um, a sex offender uh, uh, treatment outpatient, you know, so Leaveston became known for that. It was very breakthrough in the time, in the 1960s, to recognize, you know, sex offenders, and that's, in fact, there's still a unit up near the park that has that. Um, but it would either be geographical, or it would be like, that's where your family was, or it's Colony Hatch and Mile End. They were, they were relatively small hospitals just for, like, you know, they really didn't house people that had really bad psychosis. That was for the bigger hospitals. So that's more than likely why, in Kaminsky's case, he went to Mile End. His brother Wolf took him out. Wolfgang took him out. It got bad. They Colony had says we can't handle him, and that's when he was taken to uh, Leavesden in April of uh, 1894. So that's what I would suspect would happen. Yeah. Okay, Sue, you got a question? Go ahead. Really, in a sense, is following on from Dorian's question about uh, why people were there. Um, do you have any feel for the sort of number, percentage of people there uh, because they were suffering from uh, syphilis? From suffering from syphilis. So, how many people? I, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have any any numbers, or I, I wouldn't guess at how many people were actually there. Um, you'd have to actually start looking up patient records. 
but I can, I'm pretty confident in saying that it was probably a pretty big reason that somebody would end up there. Because untreated sexually transmitted diseases, syphilis and things like that, go right to your organic brain, and that's where you become so psychotic uh, because of that. And there was a lot of that kind of transmitted diseases going around because you didn't know about protection and, you know, and penicillin and all that. So, yes. Are any, is, it, is, is it known to happen at least? No, it's not really known, but we know of, at least Aaron Kosminski, we know of a couple of other cases, um, both men and women, you know, um, but not, not that it would have any real, you know, significant numbers um, for that facility. So are the records complete, would you say, for the, uh, the patients at Um There were two problems with the records that we found when everybody started, or myself and everybody started doing this. Um, in 1930, the Leaston uh, Mental Hospital had a major flood, a pipe broke, and they had a major flood of their records room uh, down under, in, in the undercroft, you know, wherever they stored all this. Now these are all the records going back to 1868. So from, 1930, from 1868 to 1930, all those records got waterlogged, lost. I don't know what happened to the Book of Remembrance. There is, a, there is a big plaque up in the cemetery that says, remember in the name of God all those whose ashes are buried here and whose names are recorded in the Book of Remembrance at the Leaston Chapel. That book is the holy grail for everybody that's involved in this project. Nobody can find that Book of Remembrance. If we could find that book, we would know at least 52 people that are, uh, whose ashes are there. Or we would know everybody that was there. All We suspect that, not counting the mass grave, we suspect there's at least another 5,000 buried there. Unnamed, that we can't find. But you can get a hold of the London Metropolitan Archives, who are a bunch of not really nice people. Um, and you can try and get, but they, they will tell you that you can't access any of those damaged uh, records. And there's tons of them. They have a three-page list, a three-page catalog of documents relating to Leafs and Hospital you can't touch because they're either cop uh, not copyrighted, uh, data protected for another 75 years or something, or they're so damaged that they won't let even professionals look at it, which I think is a bunch of bullshit. But, but unfortunately, that's the problem we found, um, and, and that's where I started to get worried because there weren't enough records that people could access. People were asking questions. Everybody has stories to tell, but there was no place to go. There was no, nobody was telling their stories. And if we didn't, because a lot of the people that were working there, a lot of the people I met, they were working there in the 60s, 70s, you know, they were not getting any younger, and they weren't gonna be around for much longer, and I needed to capture their stories. And that's when I started running around doing personal interviews and transcribing them and everything, because I wanted those, those stories. Now you can find most of them on, the web, on our website. And I still have probably another 50 to transcribe and, and put up, but that's what we're doing to save the, the history and heritage of the, the history and heritage of the people and places and events that made up, you know, this, this, this hospital. Uh, because the records are just not there anymore. Especially anything prior to 1860s. I mean, just if they're not even damaged. I mean, it's hard to get records from the 1860s because they're not recorded anymore. You know, so. Thank you. But I still have enough information for two more books if I want to write. <laughs>
Okay, well, thanks very much for coming. It's been a terrific and fascinating talk. Thank you for being an absolutely wonderful audience. <laughs> I was really nervous about this. I mean, this is the Whitechapel Society, you know. This isn't the local Youth Free A or Women's Institute. You guys are, like, serious with this. <laughs> I was a bit nervous. Thank you for making it very enjoyable. Good stuff. We're glad you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much.